Well, this is chapter one of After Amen. And if you've not read it yet, I want to read it to you. And this is going to be very similar to what you'll receive if you buy the book on Audible. Um, but the difference is, is I'm just going to make some comments uh, along the way uh, to kind of give you the director's cut of this talk. This, uh, this chapter was actually written probably a year and a half ago, and then it takes a while for it to finally go to print, and some things in our life have, have changed, specifically the first story. So here we go. Chapter 1, After Amen, What to Do While Waiting on God. Chapter 1, Hello, Is Anybody Out There? We are dog people. I know others like cats, and my kids would love that, but since a couple of us are allergic to cats, we are dog people. Can I stop right there? We actually got a cat. The worst thing to happen over COVID was that a cat came to live in our home. That's a whole other story, and I'll tell you about it some other time. But we have two dogs, one cat. Back to the story. That being said, my youngest daughter, Sydney, was scared of dogs until she was around four. That is when she met a Shih Tzu puppy named Charlie Brown. Our friend Jill had a Shih Tzu that had puppies, and Charlie Brown was one of them. He was cute, cuddly, soft, and had markings on his back like Charlie Brown's infamous t-shirt, thus his name. And Sydney fell in love. We all did, to be honest. So we decided that if we're going to get a dog, we should get this one because Sydney isn't scared of him. My wife and I had had dogs before, but we never had a Shih Tzu, uh, which, by the way, is very difficult to say in a way that allows me to keep my job. We were amazed at how great a dog this one was. Charlie was fun, loyal, trainable, and as calm as a puppy could be. And as time went by, Charlie only got better. Personable, loyal, photogenic, all the qualities of a great dog. So four years later, when Jill called us and said that Charlie's mom was expecting another litter, we thought, what's better than one dog? Two. We told Jill if there was a girl, we'd take her. Not a boy. We didn't want the alpha dog battle in our home, but a girl. That would be perfect. Our girls were 8 and 10 at the time, so they were perfectly suited to help take care of the added dog. Jill said, well, I have one girl promised already, so if we have two girls, the second one is yours. Deal. We began the waiting process to see if Charlie would be getting a sister. Picking a name was easy. We had to go with Lucy, of course. Barring any incident with a football, these two should be a perfect pair. The waiting was the tough part. Our girls were so excited, as were we, but we tried to be realistic. We kept telling our kids that there may not be two girls, so we shouldn't get our hopes up. But you know, telling your kids not to get their hopes up regarding a possible puppy is like telling them to go to sleep early on Christmas Eve. So one August evening, we got the call around dinner time. Mama Dog was in labor. Puppies were on their way. We would soon learn the verdict. We waited, not so patiently, for the up-to-the-minute results coming in via text. Bzzz. First puppy. It's a girl. Perfect. Now the next girl is ours. Bzzz. Second puppy. It's a boy. Okay, we can live with that. Surely she'll have more puppies. Bzzz. Third puppy. It's a boy. Hmm. Now we're getting nervous. And then the text stopped. About 30 minutes, we finally got one last text. Sorry, I think that's it. We were all devastated. My wife, Lori, and I knew that we had to put on a tough face. It's okay. Maybe we'll get another one somewhere else. Let's just be happy with what we have. And other frustrated phrases like that. However, the really interesting comments happened next. Through tears, I heard Lindsay, our 10-year-old, say, I don't know what happened. I've been praying for this. And then almost confessing, my 8-year-old daughter, Sydney, said, It's all my fault. I didn't pray at all. 
Lindsay looked at her like Sydney was holding a bag of 30 pieces of silver. What do you say as a parent? How do you deal with this theological conundrum? Did Sydney cause the dog not to have another girl by not praying? Did God say no to Lindsay? Was any of this even God's fault? I know God cares about people, but did God really care about how many puppies there were? I answered them the way any parent would. Girls, it's time for bed. Finally, Lori and I got the girls calmed down that fateful night and put them to bed. But not long after they went to sleep, we got another text from Jill. She said, well, we've got one more puppy. It came late, and it's a girl. We were so excited, we couldn't wait until morning. I rushed into the girl's bedroom and yelled, she had another puppy. The girl sat up, stunned, and said, all right, fell back to sleep. Not quite the reaction I was envisioning. The next morning, I asked if they remembered me coming in their room last night. No, Dad. So I told them the good news again, and finally I got the reaction I was expecting. There was great rejoicing. Lindsay felt her prayers had been answered. Sydney felt her lack of prayers had been forgiven. And Lori and I were thrilled to see them so happy. Now, here's how this applies to you and I. You and I have prayed for much more than just a puppy. But we have had the same questions about God and prayer. Every day we join the throngs of billions as we beg God for His help. A family prays for a parent to be free from cancer. A couple prays for a pregnancy. A child has prayed for their parents to stop fighting and not separate. A church prays for God to move in their city. A pastor prays for his congregation to get serious about following Jesus. We've all prayed big prayers, only to hear nothing. So we're left with our questions. Why does God seem to answer some prayers and not others? Do my actions determine his answers? Is he waiting on me to do something? Should I even keep asking? As a side note, I might add that I have felt this way my entire Christian life. And I have had moments where I thought, okay, I got this prayer thing figured out. If I do A, B, and C, then I get an answer. Only to find out that God's not as formulaic as I would like. Here's some things that we question. We question God's decision-making. Why did God say no? And why does he say yes to some, yet no to me? I walked with a man through the darkest days of life. He lost a custody hearing to his ex-wife, whose boyfriend had molested my friend's children. We prayed for months for God to help the judge to see the truth and reward those precious children to the safety of their father. But the judge said no. But why? Why did God do nothing? The only thing worse than God's silence is when I hear others celebrate what they believe God has done for them. For example, you ever heard this one? I was at the mall. It was packed. I prayed for a parking spot. And just then a car backed out of a front row space. Praise God. Seriously? This causes us to question if God is great and able or if he's good and willing. Why would he allow this? And if I throw out his activity in the parking spot, do I need to throw out his activity? And if I throw out his activity in the parking spot, do I need to throw out his activity altogether? Well, not only do we question that, we question God's hearing. Is God even listening to me? Does God even care? And the silence can be deafening at times. I know because I grew up watching my parents pray. My mom would ask God for things. My dad would just thank God for things. My mom kept a prayer journal of what she asked. My dad just prayed for dinner. The older I get, the more I think I understand my father more. He grew up without a dad, spent time in a military school. His first wife left him, and his only experience with God was his seeming silence. 
Where was God when all these things were going wrong? When he married again and had kids and started going to church, he was still a bit skeptical if God hears any of us, especially him. When you don't think God hears you, it's easy just to pray for dinner. For many of us, we watched our parents pray and nothing happened. Then we prayed and nothing happened. And now when we pray, we just thank God for the food. At least that way, if he's not listening, nothing is at stake. Ever heard the phrase, hedging your bets? It means to protect yourself from making the wrong choice, like cheering for both teams in the Super Bowl. Or when a weather forecaster says, the storm might hit land or it might stay at sea. It takes the pressure off. I think I do this with God. It's much easier to ask God for a nice day or traveling mercies than it is to ask him to heal someone. And I think secretly and wonder, is my faith strong enough that if God says no, I won't interpret it as if he's not listening? But here's another question we wrestle with. We question our part. There's an old movie that I always stop on when I'm scrolling through channels, and it's the movie A Few Good Men. It's a great movie investigating the death of a Marine that involves twists and turns in classic courtroom drama. And there's a fantastic scene where the staunch, hardened Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, is being questioned by Tom Cruise's character, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey. Caffey asks for some flight records from Jessup, to which Jessup is clearly annoyed. And finally, Jessup replies, I will on one condition. What is that? Caffey asks. You have to ask me nicely. Caffey's confused by this seemingly elementary way of thinking, to which Jessup goes on a tirade of how he deserves some respect. I kind of think of that sometimes when I pray. I almost wonder if God is saying, you have to ask me nicely. I mean, let's be honest. Haven't we all wondered, is there a set of magic words we have to say in order to get God's attention? Do we need a certain number of Hail Marys, Our Fathers, and Lord, I'm begging you to make God uncross his arms, lean forward, and give us what we want? In other words, do our actions determine his answers? We know it is possible for our actions to get a no from God. In Joshua 7, we read of how one man's actions caused devastating results for an entire army. Israel was living under the blessing of God and on a tremendous winning streak when it came to battles and advancing their kingdom. But then out of the blue, they suffered a surprising loss. 36 men were killed in a battle, and the others took off running from the people of Ai. Joshua went before God asking for a reason why God backed out on his promise, and God quickly redirected Joshua to his own people. They were the ones that had broken the covenant. And after a morning inquiry, Achan, the son of Carmi, from the tribe of Judah, finally confessed. It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. Because Achan had broken the covenant with God, uh, not stealing from their conquest, he caused God to pull back his hand of blessing on their entire nation. And in the darkest moments of God's silence in my life, this is what I wonder. Have I not upheld my end of the bargain? Have I violated God's law in some way? Is there some tiny clause from the fine print in Leviticus I've overlooked? Am I Achan? You may not have heard of Achan before, but you've wondered if you're like him. This is what we all fear. Did we do or not do something before we prayed that jeopardized our prayer? When disaster strikes your home, do you ask, what did I do? When God seems silent, do you wonder, is it my fault? 
when a puppy isn't born, do you speculate, did I not pray enough? Is it my sister's fault for not praying at all? Our questions are all focused on our own actions before we pray. But what if there's a better question to ask? Can my actions after my prayer determine his answers? Many options have been given to us regarding what to do before we pray. Go into your room and be alone with God. Stand in the church and cry out with other believers. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask forgiveness from those you've wronged. Take time to praise God for who he is and what he's done. Sing at least one Chris Tomlin song and one hymn. Then you may ask God for things. But did you ever wonder what to do after you pray? I mean, do my actions after prayer really have anything to do with his answer? Is there anything you and I may be doing or not doing that could cause us not to see God's answer? Or perhaps worse, for God to choose to say no? There are many moments in our lives where regardless of past experiences and failures, we find ourselves so desperate we cry out to God. We pour out our prayers, making promises, deals, confessions, and then we say, Amen. And then we wait, and we wait. It feels like when you send a text to someone and pour your heart out, and then they start to text back. You see the three dots on the screen telling you they're responding, but it just takes forever. You keep checking. You refresh your screen. You even turn off your phone and turn it back on in case a signal was missed, and you still wait. And for many of us, this describes our prayer life, staring at the three dots in the bubble. When you look at the life and ministry of Jesus you see that he has some very unique instructions for people, not just before they pray, but even after. The ministry of Jesus shows us a variety of people who come to him in need. Some get an immediate answer, some have work to do, and some simply wait. But all these situations teach us what to do after we say amen. Think about the different responses people got when they made a request of Jesus. Get up, take up your mat and go. Go and wash your eyes. Head home first. Go and show yourself to the priest. You figure it out. Stay here. Tell me, why should I? As much as the scriptures have to say about what to do before we pray, Jesus gives us many examples of what to do after we pray. Why would Jesus give us such odd instructions? He's not one to waste words or efforts. Could it be that he's teaching us what to do while we wait on God? Could it be that the answer to our prayers may hang in the balance of what we do next? Could our understanding of God's action have everything to do with what we do after we say amen? What do we do while we wait for God to answer our prayers? This is the exact dilemma that Mary faces early in the life of Jesus. Jesus hasn't even started his public ministry yet. No one knows who he really is except Mary, Joseph, and John the Baptist. Any followers of his are simply thinking that they're just following a rabbi. And when Jesus goes to a wedding, the unthinkable happens. The hosts run out of wine. Whether or not you think wine should be consumed at a wedding or at all, they didn't have an issue with it back then. In fact, some scholars say that the lack of wine at a wedding could result in a lawsuit. <laughs> Back then, the wedding celebration didn't last a few hours after the ceremony with a dance floor and cutting the cake. The wedding party could last for days. After all, everyone had traveled so far that they made the most of the celebration. And now, they're almost out of wine. Mary decides to bring her request to Jesus. This may be the first prayer to Jesus, and his reaction is stunning. Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. <laughs> 
There are some scholars that think the reason she comes to Jesus is because, as guests, they might have been responsible for bringing some wine. But either way, Jesus basically says no. But Mary still believes he's about to do something. But Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you. We don't know if he winks at Mary. We don't know if he raises an eyebrow. And the servants certainly don't know. They just know that Mary says, do what he says. And even though the prayer has already been asked, even though it's already been denied, Jesus then tells them what to do next. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. These are six stone water pots used for ritual washing. They could each hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus tells them to fill it to the brim, all water, no wine, not even the residue of wine. And aside from meeting the needs of the wedding, this miracle would make a very nice wedding gift. Think about how heavy these would be. They would weigh roughly 300 pounds apiece. Walk it down to the river, fill it up, bring it back. Now do it five more times in the heat while dressed for a wedding. And every time they must be thinking, why are we doing this? When the jars had been filled, and I think that's our key phrase, when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out, take it to the master of ceremonies. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, he called the bridegroom over and he said, a host always serves the best wine first. And then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine but you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I think the key phrase there is, when the jars had been filled. Not when the request was made, not when the first jar was brought back filled, not after the third jar did they begin to smell the bouquet of wine, but after all the jars had been filled. After they had done everything Jesus said, then the miracle was finally made known. God is faithful, not just while we wait, but while we work. And our actions after the prayer can determine his answer. In her book, Unglued, Lisa Turkhurst says, Ultimately, the responsibility for winning this battle we're facing doesn't belong to us. We're not responsible for figuring it all out. Our job is simply to be obedient to God in the midst of what we're facing. God's job is results. Obedience positions us in the flow of God's power, working with God's ways instead of against God's ways. Are you overwhelmed with money issues? Look up verses on money and start applying God's word to your bank account and your bills. Having marital problems? Look up biblical truths addressed to husbands and wives and start applying them. Dealing with friendship troubles? Same thing. So let me ask you, What's the prayer you've prayed that has you waiting on God? Is it a prayer for healing? Is it a prayer for racial reconciliation? Is it a prayer for relational reconciliation? Is it a prayer for peace in your spirit? Is it a prayer for hope in your family? Is it a prayer for transformation in your spouse? And do you feel like you're looking at three blinking dots in a bubble while you wait for God to text you back? Could it be God is waiting on you to fill some jars? Could it be you are only on your fourth trip out of six to the river? And maybe the answer you seek is found while you work, while you wait. So, what should you be doing after you say amen? 
I'm glad you asked. And that's what I spend the rest of the book talking about. If you don't have a copy yet, you can pick it up at afteramenbook.com, pastorrustygeorge.com, or if you just like paying extra, you can go to amazon.com. Thanks so much for listening. Let's just-